everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. This week's episode has been dedicated in loving memory of Sarah Benin, Sarah Hana Bat Yeshaya Vilea, whose 17th yard site is on the 29th of Tishrei by her daughter Nomi, a devoted podcast listener. We hope her neshama has an aliyah. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email me at podcast.matan.org.il. These sponsorships enable us to keep creating new content and are a meaningful way to mark both mournful and joyful occasions. Be in touch and together we can come up with a way to meaningfully mark your occasion. This Breshit series is titled Chosenness and Choices. The book of Breshit is propelled forward by God's chosen representatives, Adam, Cain, Noach, Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov. But these messengers impact the world because of the choices they make, and it is a nexus between being chosen and the human choices that actualize this divine will in the world that we will be exploring in the coming episodes on Breshit. Parshat Noach opens with a descriptive portrait of Noach's family and the explanation for the flood's necessity. The flood is a story with multiple parts, Noach's physical preparations, the actual flooding of the earth, the receding waters, the exit of Noach and his family from the ark, the covenant of the rainbow symbolizing God's resolve to never repeat such destruction as a solution to man's corruption, and the somewhat enigmatic story of Noach's planting a grape vineyard, which results in a shameful encounter with his children that sets up a paradigm for their future success and subservience to one another. After the flood narrative, chapter 10 contains what scholars call the Table of Nations, which maps out the population dispersion of Noach's three sons. The Parsha continues with the famous Tower of Babel story, perhaps one of the Torah's most poignant reflections on the dangers of restrictive thinking coupled with technological advancement, and it closes with the genealogy of Shem. This narrows the Torah's spotlight on the family of Terach and Avram, moving away from the universal focus of Breshit's first 11 chapters and shifts to one one family who will be charged with a first attempt to model a perfected moral and religious existence in the world. This episode was initially recorded before the current events, uh, current horrific events in Israel, and the partner of that conversation and I came to the decision that that content was not something that we were willing to put out as the world was simply a different place. And as things developed and everyone sort of was trying to check in about their emotional availability, uh, in the end of the day, what you have today is a, probably a shorter version uh, of some of the things we said, which ended up, I think, still being very relevant uh, as a solo uh, podcast. So it's just going to be me today. And if I'll be perfectly honest with you going forward, I don't know what will be. Uh, I had recorded a few episodes in advance and many of the people who were theoretically going to be partnering with me in a lot of these episodes are not really feeling up to it. But who knows where everybody will be in a few weeks' time. Uh, we simply don't know anything. So for all of you, those who were really waiting for these episodes to come back and sort of have a tenor of conversation that you really feel resonates, I hope that we'll be able to provide, that I'll be able to show up. Um, but I also have to be honest about where, where we're holding, where I'm holding, how I can manage to focus on these conversations. And we will update and maybe maybe we'll decide to do episodes some weeks and not others. It, it's just, we really, you know, 
in the Middle East, there really is no clear planning very often. And we just have so many insane reminders throughout our lives that that's the case. So that being said, uh, I wanted to share a few thoughts about about this week's Parsha, because I actually think that our, the initial conversation we had recorded was about the the character of Noah, who he is, what we know about him. And I think that today's episode is one that will focus more on the story of Noah after he emerges from the Teva. Um, but just to put that in context, you know, we are introduced to him and the Psukim tell us that he is a an Ish Tzadik and that while the world has really sort of fallen into a moral depravity uh, and and Noah is a strong uh, a strong contrast to that and if I can already sort of import that into what's going on right now uh, I believe that very often in Israel <laughs> that's a real feeling that we have that there is a tremendous amount of of horror and terrorism uh, in the region around us, in the generation around us. And while we do not always live up to the name of being an, an Am Tzadik, that is mitalech im, im HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the way that it's described of Noach, but it's definitely the, uh, the aspiration of Am Yisrael in this moment of time. In, I, again, unfortunately, I think we earned our stripes, but many uh, many around the world are acknowledging that strong distinction. But when I read the Parsha in light of current events, I look at Noach in comparison to those around him, and it, it resonates. I think also our question about who Noach is and you know how effective was he is, is also one that resonates. In the Psukim, Noach really doesn't push anybody to do tshuva. Uh, and in that regard, uh, and the Midrashim fill it in because it's it's quite missing. But in that regard, that's the massive difference really between him and Avram Avinu. That when Avram, you know, is told that only a city will be destroyed, I mean, he he goes ballistic on God uh, and starts one of the most famous uh, debates with God in in all in all of history. And Noah is told that the world will be destroyed, and he doesn't say anything. Noah actually doesn't speak at all until he speaks in the in the aftermath of the flood when he curses his son. His first spoken part is to curse. And and while I don't think that the psukim necessarily really mean to uh, negatively judge or certainly not incriminate Noah, the comparison with Abraham when it comes to fighting back what he believes is a choice that is is too heavy is not necessarily in consonance with the actions that have been that have been taken. It really is quite a portrayal of Noach that is difficult and that leaves us wanting and that realizes that maybe maybe Av- there had to be somebody before Avram. There had to be a Noach so that Avram would know that that we could that we could fight back, right? That God God declares and God makes these decisions in the world, but that our job as humans is to push back against what we believe are immoral or incorrect decisions, even if it's something as outlandish as trying to push back on God's decisions. There are lots of of time calculations in the description of the flood 
which by the way, if you try and do them are kind of confusing and the source of a lot of criticism about the story. But I think a lot of us know, and again, I'm very much overtly reading this into our experience over the past few days, past week, is that I have no doubt that when Noach was in that teva, for him time stopped completely. He had a very clear purpose. It was to bring all of those creatures and his immediate family uh, out of that ark to safety. And when you're that focused on that on, on that task, you're you're not able to keep time. That that kind of, of of timetable is irrelevant to those who are just trying to survive. It's very much I think the the experience that many of us are having right now, right? How much time has passed? What's happening? When did that happen? Uh, it's just the feeling of going inside because if you go outside, it's too horrific. There's too much destruction. And so you have to dig so deep. You have to dig deeper than you ever thought you could inside of you and and just go inside and and survive. Now, of course, the heroism of Amisrael that we're seeing in the past few days is people's ability to to also look externally to them. I think that in the story of Noach, if I sort of stay steer, uh, steer the course in our parsha, is that Noach goes through those days and the the destruction and recreation motif of the flood is one of the main ones, right? Of the world was just created in the first two chapters of Brashid, and the elements, literally almost one by one, are destroyed in the flood story, and of course will have to be recreated afterward. And so Noach comes out of that experience again we really don't know anything he's he's experiencing at least in any clear way from the psukim and and first he sends out the raven which of course is a bird of prey because it's clear to him the world is just it's just a place of corpses that's all there is on the outside uh, and then he sends the dove which already shows a certain degree of progression uh, of saying okay maybe we've passed that initial, that initial moment of utter destruction and death. And and he emerges from the from the Teva. He does a lot of things actually. He brings a korban, he brings a sacrifice, that sacrifice is received by God. He receives a covenant from God, um, which is both really the the demand that that man be fruitful and multiply, which I'll come back to that in one moment. And of course, the the covenant of of the rainbow. Uh, the covenant of the rainbow is not a breed in the reciprocal sense of things. Noah has no part, human, humankind has no part. It's God's promise to us, right? With that famously turned upside down uh, bow, right? It's now, if it's shot, it's facing God. It's no longer going to face, face, the, face the world. It's that militarism that's now been been removed from the world, but it's not a a reciprocal commitment. Um, mankind has no part of that. That that really that reciprocal commitment will come later when we're commanded to do a brit milah. Right. That's again another element of sort of Abraham finishing uh, or taking what happens in Noah's lifetime a step further. But if I go back to that fruitful multiply that God tells. Noach, it's, I mean, also halachically, one of the places we really learn out that, that obligation. And I think it's very clear that the reason that God has to 
sort of reiterates that we have to procreate is because when the world has been destroyed, who would want to do that? What do you, what do you, what world are you bringing children into? And if I could backtrack for a moment, there's an amazingly deep midrash about the birth of Noach's sons. If you look in the end of chapter five in Parakei, uh, Noach is 500 years old and he has children. Now that in comparison to the others on the list is tremendously different. Before him, Lemech is 182 years and and Yared is 162 and Metushelach is 187 and they're much younger when they have children. And so Noach having children at 500 is, is very surprising. And the Mitras chimes in and says, yeah, well, you know what? Noach was already told that the world was going to be destroyed. And so he said, why would I have children now? Why would I bring children to a world that I cannot, uh, I cannot guarantee will still exist? And so he doesn't have children. And, and then God says, no, don't worry, I'll save you and your family. So, so he does have children. And I think, again, that anguish, I, I will repeat a conversation that just happened yesterday. A friend of mine literally has a four-week-old baby. Um, and kind of miraculous settings and she's not on the younger end of procreation and this in of itself was really a massive gift and and she said to me but we lost so many in one day we have to replace them in the most just basic intuitive maternal kind of way and and I think that that you know that that sentence very much reflects a similar idea um in the opposite, right? Because if we have a world that we believe in, that we want to perpetuate, and we want to make sure that that we're here, we're here to be in that world. And so Noah, before the flood, experiences the opposite. He experiences despair. Why would I have children? And so God promises him, says the Midrash, and then he has three sons. What I think is also striking is that after the the flood, when God has this com- gives this commandment to to procreate, Noah never has more children, or it's never recorded. Adam, for example, after the atrocity of his son's murder by his own son, he does have another child, and he is able to sort of pull himself up, if we could say it like that. Him and his wife, of course. Uh, and 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 recreate another branch of the family. We don't see that with Noah. And again, this is all sort of very subtle. Perhaps it's overcritical, but it's these small, small details that you start to sort of maybe get a sense of 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 what Noah experienced. Again, I think part of the reason why it's very difficult to glean is because he doesn't speak almost at all until the end of the story. So we're sort of judging from the silences. We're judging from the actions. We're trying to understand him better more than judging. So let's go to that story that uh, that takes place after the, the the breed of the rainbow. The very short, difficult, enigmatic, and perplexing narrative I'm thinking about is the one that is the second half of of the of the ninth chapter of, of Periktet. We again have the repetition in the in Pasuk Yudchet 18. That we have here the, the three sons that come out with Noach from the Teva. Again, we knew that, but this is sort of a resumptive repetition because we're about to hear about those three sons. So the, ten, the Sefer Breshit sort of recaps that information for us. And Sefer Breshit says from these three sons, the entire earth will be populated and created. And therefore, pay attention to the story that comes after because it's clearly going to be very significant. 
ויחל נוח איש האדמה וייטע כרם. There are a lot of uh, sort of semantic or grammatical questions we have about this פסוק, but I just want to point out something specific. It says here that, that נוח began in the most literal sense. He sort of began to be a, a tiller of the soil. Again, there are many ways to understand this uh, pasuk. It could be that, that Noah, who's called the Isha Adama, began to plant a vineyard. I think the first reading is actually the more correct one. But, but it was interesting here in this, I want to credit uh, Yael Ziegler, who pointed this out to me, uh, which is that Noah may have been slightly demoted here. When we first met him, he's an Ish Tzadik, and now he's an Isha Adama. Now, on one hand, he needed to be Nisha Adama. He needs to be a man of the, of the soil, of the earth, right? To, to create the world, recreate the world that he's been met with. But on the other hand, we sort of sense that something has shifted here, that his focus is in a different space. Uh, and it's definitely less on a, on a, on a religious plane. And so he's really the one in charge of, of cultivating, cultivating the, the earth. Now, very oddly, the first thing he chooses to plant is a vineyard. Now, what students always ask me in these early stories of Brishit is, well, did they realize what they were doing, right? Did, did Noach realize that if he planted grapes and that if he worked them in a certain way that he could create wine, right? Did Hevel know that he, he could kill his brother or did it just sort of have this impulse to hurt and that hurt ended up with this, uh, with the reality of, of murder, right? We have these, they're very important questions. Uh, I do believe that certainly when it comes to the kind and Hevel question, that Sefer Breshit makes it known in many places that we are born with a, a natural, intuitive, moral sense. It's a philosophical debate. Is there such thing as natural uh, morality? I think that Sefer Breshit makes the case in many places that that is indeed true, that that we are born with a natural morality and it's a question of whether or not you listen, you cultivate and you, and you utilize it and activate it in the world. I don't know if Noah knew what he was doing when he planted this carom, this vineyard, but whether it came with initial knowledge or not, the activity that then follows, I think does suggest a certain explanation. Vayesht min hayayin, vayishkar, vayitgal betoch, Oh, hello. Okay, he, he drinks from the wine and he indeed becomes drunk and then he basically rolls around naked in his tent, right? He's, he's, uh, he's uncovered. I, I always read this as a very painful pasuk. Uh, I think of Noach as somebody who has come out of the teva, he's been saved, but into what reality is he walking into? Right? This is really, really difficult. And when somebody comes out of the ashes of such destruction, they have two choices, I think. They can sink into the, I think, very clear depression that is easily, which can easily overtake someone who's suffered or who's been left so alone. And then there are those who push to survive. Some even thrive, but first they have to survive. I remember I used to, well, once in a while, would ask these questions to my aunts. My, my father's family story is completely not understandable. Uh, six children born during the war in Siberian work camps, one born in a DP camp in Paris. And uh, aside from the biological questions I have about how that physically happened, I, I you know, say... 
I, I've asked my aunt, like, what, what did that look like? And she said, you don't ask questions. You just move forward because if you look back, you'll be swallowed alive. And I think that Jews throughout many centuries have have had to adopt that stance. Um, we've been privileged in this era, even with all the difficulties we've faced, that we can philosophize and think and theorize and moralize. I think, again, if I can jump back into the reality I'm in right now in Israel, I think we are still very much in the, uh, many of us are just in the push forward, right? The questions and the uh, and the, the difficult questions that need to be asked about how things unfolded and who did and didn't help and, and what, could it have been prevented, there will be a time for that uh, for that reckoning. But that time isn't right now. And I think most of us know that. Right now is the put your feet in front of the other, make sure you're safe today, and make sure this doesn't happen ever again. And, and so there's that choice when you come out of the ashes of that destruction and and really sadly but really understandably we get a sense that noah falls into the first option into this sort of a need for an escapism and i say that without it's this isn't about judging right also those are sort of moral concepts that obviously noah wasn't aware of in, in that way that we speak of today and 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 that's what happens to him. Now, what's interesting, though, is the different reactions from his children. Okay, so first you have the reaction of Ham, who we're told many times is the father of Canaan. I'll put that point on the side for now. It's, it's a, I think Kasuto explains this the best, which is that it, among the many aspects of the story, it's also an ideological story. It's a story that explains origins, and the story explains the origins of the of the immorality of Canaan. And so, even though Canaan, in in terms of the psukim, was never involved in this, of course, I mean, Josh reads into it and says, really, it was Canaan who did it, and he told his father. According to the psukim, Canaan has nothing to do with this. But but in a very basic sense, the story comes to explain to us, explains to us how people like the Canaanim, the Canaanites who were known for their immorality, how they came to be. They came to be because they're descendants of this kind of action. Now, what was this kind of action? First, we have the seeing and then the telling. Shadal is, was the first I ever saw to point this out, that there was a two, two elements to the crime, so to speak. A, that he saw it all, and B, that he told. Now, it's very difficult because this story is so elliptical and we really don't know all the details, but it seems that his brothers, for example, uh, Shem and Yefet, they knew that they weren't supposed to see their father this way. Again, whether it was an internal moral sense, they knew, which is why even when they go in a, pus, a pasuk later, Vayikach Shem Vayefet at Asimla, Vayasimu al Shem Shnehem, Vayelchu Achoranit, Vayechasu at Elvat Avihem, Ufnehem Achoranit, Velvat Avihem Lorou. The Pasuk describes three times in three different ways that they made a point not to look at their father. They cover themselves with the sheet, then they put the sheet over him. It uh, reminds me a lot for all the women listening, right, of what uh, Balaniot, of what the mikvah attendants do in the mikvah, right? You make sure you see nothing. And so, and so that's what they did. They, they knew to do that. And Ham, it seems, now again, if he stumbled across his father by mistake, then then how can we blame him? But the Psukim seem to blame him. Uh, certainly Noach blames him. And his brothers know to act differently. They know that whatever has happened here is not something they should see. Uh, Leon Cass in, I think, what is the most 
poignant commentaries I've seen on this story. He takes the midrashic tradition of uh, the explanation that, well, if they're trying to figure out what did he do that was so bad that then Noah curses him. And one of the suggestions is that he actually commits sodomy with his father or he castrates his father, whatever it might be, but that it's some sort of sexual morality, again, because the Midrash is connecting it to the nations of Canaan who were known for their immorality. And that's, so that's explicitly later on in Sefer Dvarim. And Leon Cass says that looking at one's parents, particularly a father, whose job is to instruct and to lead and looking at them in a way that violates their authority, meaning seeing him naked was a way that violated his, his authority, is, is essentially castration, meaning you've, you've removed your father from that, from that pedestal, from that role. And, and he says that the nations of Canaan are looked at as those who, who don't revere authority, uh, and that, that's their connection to this, to this story. And so there's that element. There's also the telling element, meaning maybe Ham should have kept it to himself. It was bad enough that he saw it, right? That's happened to all of us, that we stumble upon something and we're like, ooh, I'm going to keep that inside. I, I think that this is not something that I'm looking to share. Uh, and maybe that was also the sensitivity that Ham was lacking here, that he should have, if he stumbled upon that, he should have known to keep it inside. Now, very clearly, this story recalls the story of Gan Eden, of that initial sin. Uh, there's lots of comparisons out there. Uh, you could sort of do, I think, even a Google search and you'll find some. But we have here the nakedness. We have here the loss of Da'at and then the return to Da'at uh, that we also, of course, connects us to the story of, of Gan Eden. And, and when Noach wakes up and he regains his awareness which again, right, it's Noah sort of retreating or uh, reverting back to a state before there was knowledge. But then he comes back and he's with it. And he, perhaps in a moment of prophetic insight, uh, but certainly it seems in a rageful response to his shame, he, right, he sobers up. Right, your Canaan, your your actions right now, and your response to what happens. You know where it, it makes you deserve to be at the bottom of the totem pole. You do not act like a leader. Canaan will be a servant to the blessed, uh, the blessed God and and group of Shem, which of course we descend from. Yeft Elohim leyeft, which seems something to do with he uh, enlarges or widens. Vayishkon baaleishem, but vayhi kenan evet lamo. Now the psukim here set up a very clear hierarchy. Shem is at the the top of it, even though he's not the oldest. Yeft will be underneath will be underneath Shem, but he will be above Canaan. Now, as a sidebar, this story also connects to all the stories about sons who we go against birth order, and it has to do with their sort of inherent capabilities as leaders. Uh, that already starts here. It doesn't actually only start with it starts with Cain and Hevel, and it continues here, and then moves on, of course, to Avram and his children and his grandchildren. But we have here the very clear sense that the different reactions to Noah himself, right? If we mention Noah's reaction, they sort of had these two diverging paths and he chooses the one to sort of fall into, fall into that need to escape from the destruction. So we also see the very two divergent paths of how they respond to him, right? Of, of he who violates uh, his father's privacy and, and, and his father's own shame, meaning Noah shamed himself. That is, that is 
a truth. Uh, but it also is a question how those respond to that. And Shem and Yefet uh, respond in a way that respects the dignity of, of he who has been, has been shamed. If I can try and connect this monologue <laughs> to the uh, moment of time that we're in now, I think that whenever we are faced with destruction uh, or something so cataclysmic that just the world feels as if we're in a new world uh, in that moment after, I think that we're faced with sort of a choice, even if we don't realize it at that moment. Um, we can sort of sink into into oblivion. We can sink into a space uh, without da'at, uh, either a black hole. Sometimes it's a sort of open, uh, open well of of anxiety. Uh, we could we could sort of get lost in this black hole of of fear. I think that we see to a certain degree that that happens to Noach uh, afterward, uh, in that in the story that we've been discussing. And I think that the other option. Uh, the other option is to rebuild uh, the world, and it is to to challenge those who need to be challenged. Uh, and I think that in that regard, Noach, while he brings us through the actual destruction, it is very clear that someone else, a different kind of personality, will be needed to recreate the world afterward. And I think that that is very much the connection between Noach and his personal capacity and, and Avram, who comes after, who will be a more active leader, who will be a more proactive leader, who will be somebody who will be tested in his own ways. And maybe there'll be a before and after the Akedah, and we'll be discussing that in another two weeks. But I think that the the character of Noach, meaning his his uh, his his inside, his internal personality, is one that really struggled with the the world after, with sort of just moving on and not looking back. And, and we very much feel that in in the story after the flood. And so we're looking for an Avraham and Bezrat Hashem in our own life and moment of time. We are very much looking forward to look back now and to and to philosophize is the privilege of those who maybe are at home. Uh, it's the privilege of those who, I don't know, it's a different mind space to occupy. And right now is a moment where we have to move forward, take all that we can, take the wisest, the smartest, and the strongest, and and create and and make a world that is better and more powerful than the one that was that was here before. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel Rubel, and this is One on One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.